Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Are you ready for a great history lesson on a game of football? Well, Joe Ziemba is here to put class in session as we go through jerseys number 77s and the greatest players in NFL history that wore that jersey. And it's all coming up with Joe in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com, and welcome once again to the Pigpen. It's our Football by Numbers series, and we are all the way up to jersey number 77. Can you believe that? I mean, we are 77% of the way done. Actually, a little bit more because we started with zeros. Uh, But we have our good friend Joe Ziemba joining us today to talk about these jersey number 77s because there are some great stories to be told here, and we all know that Joe can... uh, dig out some great stuff on, on these players. And so let's bring them in right now. Joe Ziemba, welcome back to the Pigpen. Darren, thank you so much again for having me in the Pigpen. I like the way you remodeled in here, and I'm fitting right in in any type of Pigpen. But um, really excited about tonight's show and this number. We're going to meet one of the biggest villains in wrestling history, uh, an ace defender who got in the ring with Muhammad Ali, a guy who married Miss Louisiana, lucky man, and a 13, uh, 13-year NFL vet who now has seen pretty much a lot on television and shows such as NS- NCIS and Dexter. So we've got a wide, wide range of players to talk about today. Well, it definitely sounds like exciting stuff, and it sounds like uh, you've got a, a whole bunch of uh, things to tell us about these guys. So why don't we start off? We'll, we'll tell everybody about what the Pro Football Hall of Fame says, and they say that there are seven players in the Hall of Fame that wore the jersey number 77 during their NFL career, and those players in no particular order are Willie Rofe, Willie Davis, Jim Parker, Red Grange, Ron Mix, and Curly Culp. And I think we have uh, three of those uh, gentlemen that uh, have only like two years uh, to, or less wearing the number 77. And those are Curly Cope, Ron Mix, and Willie Davis. So I guess there's six altogether. I said seven. But, oh, there was, there was another. They were saying Link Lyman uh, wore 77. But I could not find where Link Lyman found 77. I don't know if you did or not, Joe. No, I did not. So I think we, we have the lucky six that we're going to talk about tonight anyway. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you uh, take the wheel here, my friend, and drive us down memory lane with these uh, great players for 77. All right. Let's start with uh, Willie Roof. And, of course, played a long time in the NFL, 13 years, wore the number 77 every single year. First-round draft pick in 93 with New Orleans. He had a really incredible statistic. He played in 189 NFL games, and he started 189 NFL games. So elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2012, the College Football Hall of Fame in 2014, the Saints Hall of Fame in 2008. But a really interesting fact about Willie is his mother was not happy about him playing football. She wanted him to be a physician and later become a brain surgeon. And that woman apparently knew what she was talking about. She was the first black woman that served on the Arkansas Supreme Court. So he didn't listen to his mother, but things worked out okay, ending up in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But there are some some great uh, statistics about him. When he was anchoring the offensive line for the uh, Chiefs, Uh, They were the best offense in the NFL for uh, two straight years in 2003 and 2004. 
And then the chief's chairman said of him, he said uh, when he was named to the Hall of Fame, it's such a deserving honor. To me, Willie is the epitome of what a Hall of Famer is. Not only somebody who was individually dominant, but somebody who made everybody else who played around him a little bit better. So Willie Roof, a Hall of Famer, and I I guess we could nominate him to be on our top 10 list tonight. Yeah, I don't think there's any uh, debate over that. He has got the uh, the instant in because uh, he is definitely probably one of the top uh, 77s uh, ever. <laughs> That's why he makes his list. So, yeah, very, very interesting indeed. Great uh, player, great tackle. All right. Uh, where would you like to go next with our players at War 77? Well, we have a, another great lineman, Jim Parker, who's in the Hall of Fame. He played 11 seasons, and he was also wearing number 77 every single year, eight times in the Pro Bowl in those 11 years, twice an NFL champ. He played his entire career with the Baltimore Colts, and they won the championship twice, and he was named to the Pro Football Hall of Fame's all-1950s team. Uh, Sports Illustrated back in 1999 listed him as the uh, on first team for their all-century team uh, for players. So that was, that was pretty interesting. Named to the College Football Hall of Fame in 1977. And in a book, author Paul Zimmerman wrote about him. He said, Parker was the best pure pass blocker who ever lived. And he had to be. He was protecting Johnny Unitas for those great seasons with the Colts. And uh, at one time, Parker said, it didn't take me long to learn the one big rule with the Colts. Just keep them away from Johnny. I remember Coach Eubank telling me my first summer in camp, you can be the most unpopular man on the team if the quarterback gets hurt. So how could I ever forget that? So, uh, Mr. Parker, I think you are definitely a nominee for our top 10 list tonight for those who are number 77. I can't disagree with you a bit there. That is just a a phenomenal uh, career that Jim Parker had too on that offensive line. So yeah, definitely he is on our list also. So that takes up two of our spots and I have a feeling I know what direction you're going to go to next. Well, we do have a halfback who played for the Chicago bears (laughs) (laughs) named Red Grange. And I don't know. Kind of a big deal, right? Yeah. He he was voted as the uh, top player of all time in the NFL or the top influence Certainly a top player, I think, in college all time. In one of the many polls, you know, his statistics weren't outstanding. Um, he got a guy coming in, but what he did for the league was amazing. When the Bears signed him in 1925, the day after he completed his last game at the University of Illinois, it kind of shocked a lot of people who were against pro football, of course, because the pros were not supposed to raid the college ranks. Grange's class was still in college. He was supposed to graduate in the spring of 26, but the day after his last college game, he joined the Bears. So George Hollis, the owner coach of the Bears at the time, he interpreted the rules a little bit differently than maybe somebody else might have and signed Red Grange. Grange uh, and and Hollis, of course, went on, uh, finished the 25 season with a, a couple of extra games, uh, then they went on a tour of the South and the West uh, in the early 1926. And one of my favorite stories about Red Grange was when they were playing in Washington, the senator from Illinois was got Grange and George Ellis to meet President Coolidge. And you've probably heard this one, though, Darren, but when they met the president, the president said, oh, gentlemen, welcome. They said, yeah, these, these two gentlemen are from the Chicago Bears. And the president said, well, gentlemen, welcome. I've always admired animal acts. So we can see where pro football was in 1925. But during that same tour, uh, the Bears and the Giants played in front of 70,000 people in New York, by far the biggest crowd to see an NFL game. So it kind of went from being an annoying sidebar to college football to say maybe there is something about pro football. And that was Red Grange. And, of course, he had his all-encompassing manager, uh, C.C. Pyle, which people said later was short for cash and carry Pyle, always looking to make a dollar. And they made plenty of money that first year. He got Red Grange into the movies, et cetera. They got a big hunk of the tour money from pro football. 
and Grange uh, and Pyle eventually started another league in competition with the NFL in 1926 that only lasted a season. And then in 1925, after an injury, Grange came back and he played with the Bears for about, let's see, six more seasons. Played offense, played defense, and made an impact on the team. So uh, we can talk forever about Red Grange, but I'd certainly like to nominate him for our top 10 list tonight. No, he he definitely is the, the cream of the crop here. He would probably make it in uh, the top uh, three list of any number that he wore because uh, he was just that important to football. I mean, our, our good friend uh, Chris Willis wrote a, a whole book, a marvelous book on uh, Red Grange, got the uh, a lot of uh, detail on him from, I think from family and uh, the Hallis family helped him out. A lot of people around Chicago and Illinois university of Illinois and just a fantastic, you know, insights, this man, it's some of the things that really impressed me about him is, you know, his first paycheck as a pro, he didn't go out and, uh, you know, lavish himself in uh, luxury. He went and uh, gave it first thousand dollars to his father. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, just the the legends, you know, the, how he became the wheat and ice man. We we talked about it in other podcasts when we had Chris on uh, delivering those blocks of ice up the stairs, and uh, you know the the championship game, well, the first unofficial championship game against I think it was a uh, Portsmouth where him and Nagurski uh, had the play that was controversial to score. So, mm-hmm. and the barnstorming tour really it, it set the NFL on a course of. Uh, profitability. Uh, like you, you said, you know, the giants uh, weren't making any money until he, red Grange came and uh, visited them and 70,000 at the polo grounds. And they, they, you know, sparked a little interest in their community and got some numbers after that, even after Grange came, um, rich Schmelter was on a couple of weeks ago, talking about the Los Los Angeles uh, football and pro football and how it was uh, sort of, uh, just stagnant until Grange came out there on a barnstorming tour and, uh, just ignited, interest from football. So what this man did uh, and CC Pyle did, you know, whether you look, however you look at CC Pyle, uh, they're very important to the NFL history and why the game is what it is today. And I, I think Chris uh, Willis captures that in his book magnificently and shows the importance of that man. Uh, Chris Willis's book is like his other books on Joe Carr and Dutch Clark is phenomenal. And the detail he gets into and you can't wait to dive into the book. You're going to learn something new. They say, wow, where did he find this? The level of research is so intense. For example, finding out that Red Grange had more managers than just C.C. Pyle, which uh, blew me away. And the fact that he's right. able to get the records to uh, support his theories about that. So uh, I would certainly recommend that book uh, to anybody who has any kind of interest in the early days of the National Football League. And I guess I'd be neglectful if I didn't read the title of the book. And we're going to put it in the show notes along with Joe's books. Uh, but it's Red Grange, The Life and Legacy of the NFL's First Superstar. Uh, so you can find that on Amazon. We'll put it in the show notes. So like I said, with uh, Joe's books, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. So, okay, that takes us to three players on our list uh, with Grange. And not sure what we would do. We have th- those other three Hall of Famers, but they're all uh, – two and one years of eligibility. Let's talk about them, but we'll probably end up putting them on a standby list here. Yeah, we have the three of them, Willie Davis. Uh, He only wore number 77 for two years, but boy, five times all pro, twice a Super Bowl champ, five times an NFL champ. Spent two years with Cleveland, the rest of his career with Green Bay and a dominating force. He was 6'3", 243. Uh, for Cleveland and the, and the Green Bay Packers, as I mentioned. Then we had Ron Mix, uh, another sturdy lineman. He only wore number 77 for one year, but he had uh, eight times he was named to the Pro Bowl. And so wow. he had a great career. And then finally, our third player, who is worthy of the Hall of Fame, but might have a tough time tonight, uh, was Curly Culp. And he played for uh, Kansas and Houston and uh, – a long, long career. The Lions, six times an All-Pro, won a Super Bowl, was also an AFL champ. He was considered too short to play football. Here he ended up in the Hall of Fame. He was 6'2", 265, and thought he was maybe too small to be a linebacker. So then he went to nose tackle, defensive tackle, played guard. And little known fact about Curley, when he was in college, and he was Arizona State, he was the NCAA heavyweight wrestling champion. So those are our three others that maybe we'll consider tonight. 
Yeah, definitely under consideration. Um, but uh, there are so many great players that uh, have double-digit years wearing the 77. That's what we're trying to find is that uh, t- those top players that wore 77. So they, they still might make it with the one or two years, but uh, it's going to be a tough uh, trek for them here with some of the talent we got coming up here. So I, I know you have uh, your eye on a few of these players that are not yet in the Hall of Fame is how we'll, we'll tab them as always. So I'll let you uh, lead the way here, my friend. Good, good. Let me start with a couple of guys who made an impact in the ring. And one is Ernie Ladd, six foot nine, 290 pounds. When he came into the league back in 1961, people didn't know what to do with the guy. He made uh, four Pro Bowls, uh, one time as an AFL champ. His nickname was the Big Cat. And he wore 77 for five years. He played college hoops at Grambling State before he was discovered by, by the football community. Uh, and he had you know, a decent career. He wasn't a, a great – he started most of his games uh, on and off. Uh, a couple of years he started all 14 games back then. But he also was named um, to the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame besides being – he was just kind of amazing. He became a pro wrestler after football. And with that name, the big cat, he wrestled people like Andre the Giant and Wahoo McDaniel, who's another NFL player we talked about, but was elected to the uh, WWF Hall of Fame in 1995. So it was kind of interesting. Ernie Ladd, yeah, four-time a pro bowler, might be on our list tonight, but um, right now there's some other big ones coming up. And let me talk about another big guy who played for a tiny college. His name is Lyle Alzado. Played 15 years in the league at number 77. Made two Pro Bowls. He was five times an All-Pro player and one Super Bowl. In 1982, he was named Comeback Player of the Year, although a lot of people said at the time that, yeah, what did he come back from? He's he's very dominating, but he had a little bit of an injury. In uh, 1977, uh, he was the AFC Defensive Player of the Year. So most people think of Lyle Alzado as a uh, kind of a crazy uh, defender coming at you from everywhere. But that the Pro Football Researchers Association convention uh, last month, uh, Mark Miller, a quarterback, said that when uh, Lyle Alzado at the end of his career got traded, I believe maybe that was Cleveland at one point, that he actually lived with him for, uh, for a short period of time, was the nicest man in the world. But on the field, he was different. But I wanted to find out how could a guy who won the Wizard White Award as the Man of the Year for Community Service have such a crazy, crazy reputation? And how did he come out of Yankton College in tiny South Dakota to become an All-Pro and win a Super Bowl? Well, the reason for that was he was uh, born in Brooklyn, New York. After he completed high school, he had new scholarship offers. So he went down to Kilgore College in Texas, played for two years, then we got recruited to go to Yankton. Yankton, as I said, was a small school on the very southern tip of South Dakota. And it was a member of the Tri-State Conference. One of his teammates was Les Goodman, who played halfback for the Green Bay Packers. So I wanted to find out a little more about Lyle Ozado and went back to South Dakota Papers to find out some more about him. Uh, you, you talk about why he was so crazy on the streets. And, and this is, of course, when he was... Uh, in the pros, he had an interview at the Rapid City Journal in South Dakota, and he explained himself thusly. He said, when you've been a street fighter, like El Zeto was in New York, sometimes you will resort to old tactics if you're frustrated. You'll slap a guy in the football field, hit him on the helmet, or ram him with your helmet, or a headbutt, as we call it. But he said he got that from being a kind of a street fighter back in New York. So we go back a little further and find out what his coach at Yankton said about him. And this goes back to 1917. At the time, Lyle Alzado was 6'4", 250 pounds. And his, his college coach, Bill Bobson, said he should be one of the top picks in the pro football draft, which is uh, pretty amazing since it was an NAIA school. He said with his great speed, scouts feel he has the ability to play a number of positions. He's one of the most inspirational and dedicated men ever to put on a uniform for the Greyhounds. Well, the Greyhounds was a nickname for Yankton College. And I found a game that he played against Westmark College where he led the team with nine tackles and two assists. 
And it was a big victory for Yankton. It was the first time Yankton had beaten Westmar since 1958. So kind of interesting. I, I got in touch with a guy named Ken Kortmeyer from the University of Sioux Falls, who was around back then when Alzado was in the same league. And he remembers Alzado lining up. They had heard the reputation against a guy called the Bear for Sioux Falls. The Bear was the offensive tackle. And for a player, too, the Bear, named the Bear because he was quite hairy, was able to hold Alzado off. On that third or fourth play, Ken said, all we saw was the Bear flying backwards about 15 yards. So Alzado was tough in college. And poor little Yankton College is now a federal prison camp. It closed in 1984. But for those who say, what? What's with uh, Yankton College? Well, they had nine Rhodes Scholars the most of any school to date from South Dakota. So there's my thing with Lyle Alzado. I think we should consider him for our top 10 tonight based on his five times that he was all pro in a long career lasting 15 years. Yeah. Wow. Well, well done, uh, Joe. That was a quite a great story on him. I mean, I, th- I can give some supporting uh, evidence why I think he should be on the list. Uh, like I said, uh, the pro football reference, uh, thanks to John Turney and Nick Webster, have gotten the sack totals for uh, players in the NFL from 1981 back to 1960, which is spans a majority of uh, Alzado's career. So unofficially with their numbers, he ha- they have him down as 112 career sacks uh, during his career uh, with Denver, Cleveland, and with the Raiders. Uh you know, for, so that's uh, about 15 years in the league. Uh, unfortunately, we lost him uh, much too early. He was only 43 years old when he passed uh, with uh, some form of cancer, I believe. Uh, but those two Pro Bowls, two-time All-Pro, um, I don't think you can leave him off that list. And I, I suggest that uh, he goes on as our, our next player, our fourth player. Great, great. Yes, thank you. Let's talk okay. about another uh, big guy, uh, 6'3", 253, Dick Shafrath, who played his entire 12-year career with Cleveland. In 11 of those years, except for his rookie year, he wore number 77. And so Dick was called the Mule. Six times All-Pro, won an NFL championship. Uh, he was the team MVP in 1963. Uh, what I liked about him was he was a kind of a small guy when he was picked up to, for the pros. He only weighed 220 pounds, not very big for linemen, even way back in 1959. So he was one of the first to get involved with weightlifting to build himself up. Weightlifting and eating contests is what Dick did. He went from 220 to 270. But his, his career was uh, pretty impressive after, after football. He served as an Ohio State Senator from 1986 to 2003, and he also loved to do stunts. He once wrestled a bear, not a Chicago bear, a real bear. He once on a bet ran 62 miles to training camp, and he canoed by himself across Lake Erie. So Dick was an uh, inspirational person on and off the field. So I want to mention and nominate Dick uh, Shafraff for being on our list tonight. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you can keep him off either. Six Pro Bowls and four times as an All-Pro in a you know NFL championship. I think that's another one that's good. It's got the numbers. It's uh, you know calling right out the, to be on his top ten list. So I mean, I'm, if you're all right with it, I'm going to put him on as our fifth player. Well, may, maybe mention a guy with the best middle name. But before we uh, proceed, I wanted to remember I, I put a little teaser at the start of our discussion night about someone who got in the rink with Muhammad Ali. And that was Lyle Elzado, who did some boxing for a while, thought better of it, could do more damage. But he got in with Muhammad Ali in an exhibition match at one time. So that's the last of that trivia about Lyle Elzado from Yankton College. Jim, Jim Tyrer. The middle name was Eflo. I've never heard that before. So I'm nominating him, even if he's not in the top 10, but he'll get our best nickname tonight, the best middle <laughs> name. 13 years in the league, 12 years with number 77, nine Pro Bowls, Darren. Three yeah. times he was an AFL champ and won one Super Bowl. And when he was with the Dallas Texans before they kind of evolved into Kansas City, he played 180 consecutive games. Which is which is really amazing. If you look down at his his uh, resume, he was a starter for just about every single year of his career, every single game. So he's had some honors. Um, 
He's been the first team all 1960s team, um, first team all AFL team of all time. He was the uh, AFL Offensive Lineman of the Year in 1969. He came to a kind of a sad end. He had some business failures after his career and um, unfortunately uh, killed his wife and himself in 1980. But what a great football career he had before them. So Jim Tyrer, uh, we'd like to nominate him for our top 10 list tonight. Yeah, I, I agree, with, especially with those, uh, those all pros and uh, pro bowls. And how, how can you leave him off? So, yeah, I agree with you. Number six uh, is where he goes into our, our list here. So we have uh, four more spots to fill here and a lot of great players. Got a lot of good ones. How would you like to play tennis against a six-foot-seven opponent who has an amazing serve? That's probably why I don't play tennis. You know he'll definitely be able to jump over the net if he wins, right? Yes. <laughs> I hate to see a slam from him, but. <laughs> Six foot seven, 330 pound tackle, Andrew Whitworth uh, for Cincinnati, played with the Rams as well. A long, long career, 16 years. He wore 77 every single year. And after his first year, uh, he started every game he played in, 208 games, if I added that up right. Um, so, quite an accomplishment. His wife, Melissa, was Miss Louisiana. And he's just been after his career, uh, kind of an incredible person in the community. Just last year, he donated $250,000 to the Los Angeles Food Bank. So before he accomplished all that, four times he was on the Pro Bowl. So Andrew Whitworth, I think, uh, played from 2006 to 2020. Is he still playing? I would think I, he is. I don't know. He might not yeah. be done yet. I'm, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. So. <laughs> certainly, certainly worth our consideration for our top 10 tonight. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I'm not going to put him on yet because, uh, but I have a feeling he's got the inside track here uh, yeah. getting one of those spots. So let's, let's hold off on him a little bit because there's still some big names here to discuss and uh, only four spots to go. So uh, why don't you take us to our, our next player? All right. A couple guys who played in years gone by and one is Bruce Bosley. Born in 1933, played his entire career except for one year with San Francisco, then finished off in Atlanta. 14 years, he wore number 77, four times in the Pro Bowl. He was a tackle in college, but in the pros, he played defensive end, offensive guard, and center. Considered a member of the 49ers Golden Era team from 1946 to 69 uh, when they selected former players for that. Uh, he was also named to the college football 75th anniversary team uh, back in 1981. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame. And after his work life on the gridiron, he started remodeling houses, later co-owned an electrical supply company. And we're talking about 1977 and his college, West Virginia, retired his number, number 77. He continues to be very active in his community. So Bruce Bosley, another name we might consider for our top 10 list tonight. Uh, I agree. We'll put him on our standby list also, but yeah, he's got some, some great numbers to, to discuss. Okay. Another gentleman from back in the day was, uh, excuse me, Darren. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, who, who do you have next? So ah, we have a, a jewel of a man, a jewel, Tom Neville, Thomas Oliver Neville Jr. Played from 65 through 79, mostly with the Patriots. 13 years and 11 of those, he wore number 77. Only one Pro Bowl, but he was co-captain of the team, and he was a member in 1994, elected to the Patriots' 35th uh, anniversary team. He signed with Boston back in, uh, that would be 1965, $13,500, and he thought that was everything in the world. And then it came out that he was drafted also by Pittsburgh, with the two competing leagues, it looks like. And Pittsburgh offered 15000 but Tom turned it down because he said the guy who recruited me for Pittsburgh was a total jerk. So that's a football. I, I don't believe that. I, I protest already. <laughs> you know those Steeler guys. <laughs> so while he was playing, he developed a callus on his wrist from wearing wristwatches and the sweat and everything. And he started looking at pocket watches to keep uh, being able to keep time and tell what time it was. 
And he started collecting them. And so that led to him after his career to go back to school or maybe was during to get a degree in gemology and he opened a jewelry and watch store. So here's a man who can watch time fly. As I mentioned, a jewel of a man. He's in that business, Tom Neville, uh, one-time pro bowler. So some consideration for number 77. Yeah. Uh, not sure if he'll make it, but uh, some great stories on him. Great, great research on there, Joe. And uh, I know, I know you got a few more here in your, your bag of tricks. So I'd love to hear about them. All right. Well, let's go to Jeff, Jeff Coat, a defensive end, 6'5", 274 pounds, broke in with Dallas, spent his last three years in, with Buffalo, but 15 years in the NFL, all with number 77, won two Super Bowls, but never was elected to a Pro Bowl. But he was nominated for the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2008. He didn't make it, but that shows a consideration for Jim Jeff Coat. He never missed a game in his 12 years with Dallas. He's uh, probably best remembered in 1985. He sacked Joe Theismann five times in one game to tie a franchise record. And when he left the Cowboys to finish off in Buffalo, he was the career sack leader with 94.5 sacks total. But he at uh, one time played 224 consecutive games in a row. That's pretty redundant, consecutive in a row, but that's what he did. So 15 <laughs> years wearing number 77, although he never did make a Pro Bowl. Yeah, he uh, ended up with 102 and a half sacks for his career if you had the, the wow. three years in Buffalo. So just think about that. He had almost 5% of his sacks in that one game on one quarterback. And uh, I'm sure Joe Theismann was feeling it the next day. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Jeffco was a powerful man uh, in his playing days. So. Uh, yeah, definitely uh, one to, to consider here. I, I didn't realize uh, he was up for nomination on the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Yeah. Very interesting. But we'll put him under consideration and uh, talk about our, our next player. Well, the next guy, his nickname was Little Mo, Dick Mozaleski. And six foot, 250 pounds, played for Washington, Pittsburgh, the Giants. Most of his career with the Giants, played with Cleveland. 14 years, eight of those with number 77. He was part of two NFL championship teams, one Pro Bowl. And uh, College Football Hall of Fame called him in 1993. Uh, he was part of an early, early conflict, I guess, with uh, the Canadian Football League. He had some difficulties in 1954 with Washington. I believe Joe Kuharik was the coach. They didn't get along. So he signed with Calgary, although he was under contract with Washington which then sued Calgary, which then agreed to let Little Mo come back to Washington. They promptly traded him over to the Giants. Um, but so uh, eventually I said he uh, – oh, to Pittsburgh, I'm sorry, in 1955, where he was able to play on a team with his brother Ed, a fullback. So he started in eight NFL title games over his long career, 14 years, which is pretty amazing. Then he coached as an assistant from 68 to 89, except for one game in 1977 when he was the interim Browns coach for the last game of the season. So little Mo, long career in the NFL. Not sure if he'll make our top 10 list, but he's got some good credentials. Yeah, definitely. What a colorful uh, journey through professional football. That's uh, quite the story there. <laughs> He'd have been in a newspaper almost every day in his career. Yes. A real, real soap opera of a career. All right. Um, do you, you have some more players that you want to talk about? Yeah, some more of these big linemen. Uh, here's one, Matt Willig, 6'8", 315, played from 93 to 2005 with the Jets, with Atlanta, Green Bay, San Francisco, Carolina, and St. Louis. No Pro Bowls. Um, did win a Super Bowl, played for six teams. People now might recognize him as a tall actor on NCIS or Dexter or won some of the many movies he has played in. So an interesting concept, probably better known as an actor despite 13 years in the league as a tackle. Very nice. Willing. All right. And I, we have a couple more who maybe uh, had long careers of number 77. One of our better names was Floyd Womack. Uh, nicknames, his nickname was Porkchop. He played 10 years in the league with number 77. Not always a starter, played with Seattle and then Cleveland. And then Brad Culpepper, 
defensive tackle, played from 92 to 2000, broke in with Minnesota, played with Tampa, and final season in Chicago in 2000. But he wore number 77 for six years. Good players, anyone that can make the NFL and be a starter, I'm in awe of. But I'm not sure if they'll be on our top 10 list tonight. Yeah, I'm not sure if you'll get it. There's some pretty good players you've already discussed, and I think we've got some more that uh, probably have some good consideration. Here's another good one with a very unique nickname called the Albino Rhino, Carl Mecklenburg. Also went to a small college in South Dakota called Augustana, but made it to the big time with Denver, spent his entire career there, six-time Pro Bowler, 12 years in the league, uh, 79.5 sacks, which is still third in franchise history for sacks, even though he's been out since uh, 94. And he was elected to the Broncos Ring of Fame in 2001. So Carl Mecklenburg might be considered as one of our top 10 tonight. Yeah, I, I think he's another one that's got an inside track. And uh, for the listeners, uh, our, our leader here on uh, Sports History Network, uh, Arnie Chapman, a football history dude, had Carl Mecklenburg on probably about a month or two ago for a really entertaining uh, interview. And uh, when you get done with this one, that's when you got to go back over to the Sports History Network and check out the Football History Dude podcast and look up that one on Carl Mecklenburg because this this guy is uh, he, he is very jolly he's having a lot of fun with arnie uh they're laughing and uh he's telling some great stories about the albino rhino and his uh career <laughs> in uh, pro football and i think you'll get a real kick out of it and learn a lot more about carl uh with arnie and mecklenburg himself so check that out uh when you get done here so uh we'll put him on as our list uh for con- strong consideration i think he's yeah, the one's got the yeah. inside track but uh, i'm interested in here who else you, you'd like to talk about yeah, just got one more, I think, that might be worthy of our list. Uh, that's Rich Michael, a tackle, 6'3", 242. Had a rather brief career, six years, but he wore number 77 every year, a two-time Pro Bowl and a two-time uh, AFL champion. I uh, played for Houston from 1960 through 66. We always try and pick out some of the players who have been out of the game for a while. And so Rich Michael... Uh, might be under consideration again, twice named to the Pro Bowl, but had a rather short career of only six years. So that would be, uh, we've thrown a lot of names at you right now, Darren, for our list tonight. Yeah, uh, yeah we're going to definitely be taking a look at a lot of these guys because I, I think there's some interesting discussions we're going to have in our deliberations here because I'm going to go through here and uh, tell you who we have uh, so far on our list. We have Willie Rofe. Jim Parker, Red Grange, those are our Hall of Famers that we, we yep. put in already. Uh, then we also put in Lyle Alzado, uh, Dick Sh- uh, Sh- Shaf- Shafrath, <laughs> I mispronounced uh-huh. his name, and uh, Jim Tyre uh, as our sixth uh, players that we've put in so far. And under consideration, we said we want to come back, talk about the three Hall of Famers we skipped over, Willie Davis, Ron Mix, Curly Culp, all two years or less, so we're in 77. Uh, 16 years we're in 77 was the Andrew Whitworth. Uh, Carl Mecklenburg were for 12 seasons. Uh, then we have Ernie Ladd, Bruce Bosley, Tom Neville, uh, Jim Jeffcoat, Dick uh, Modulewski, and uh, the gentleman you just talked about, uh, Rich Michael. Uh, I'll have a little bit of a pro bowl or all pro experience or, or considered by the hall of fame that uh, puts them in consideration. So we need uh, four names from those uh, to go onto our list, Joe. And I'll let I, you I uh, do like uh, Mr. Mecklenburg. I, I totally agree there. So he'll be our seventh. And I like Andrew Whitworth also a lot. Yeah. Okay. So there is eight. And we need two more out of, of these fellas here. I, I think you you impressed me with uh, the Jeff Coat story. Ah, and uh, I don't we didn't put him on yet. No, I lost him here. Yeah, Jim Jim Jeff Coat's one of the ones we considered. Uh, how do you how do you feel about putting him on? Yeah, I think he'd be a real worthy choice um, from researching his career and seeing what he accomplished. Uh, I'm just looking to see if I have any more notes on him to help us along here, but 
Usually when I see a lot of scratching, that means he's a good candidate. And so I have lots of scratches, a 15-year career, of course, and uh, won two Super Bowls. He didn't win a Pro Bowl, but when you're nominated to Hall of Fame, sometimes they're going to recognize folks who didn't get that immediate recognition and never missed a game in 12 years. So I, I think he'd be a should be on our list. I totally agree with you. So that leaves us with one more player to put on our top 10 list of greatest number 77s. And but we still got some good ones. I mean, we still have those uh, three Hall of Famers up there too, staring at us. Um, I'm not sure uh, which way we want to go here. Do you have any uh, thoughts? Boy, we have some good ones. Boy, there's three or four. <laughs> Do you have uh-huh. any preferences for that last one? Now we've got Mecklenburg in there. Um, I mean, you bought Bosley was definitely interesting uh, mm-hmm. with, with uh, what you had to say about him, especially, you know, he had four pro bowls to him. That's, that sort of makes him, you know, sort of the, the a bright light in a dark forest here. Um, but you also brought, you know, brought up that, um, uh, Mr. Uh, Michael, Rich Michael had a couple yeah. pro bowls, uh, half as much as Bosley, uh, Ernie Ladd, another, Interesting subject you talked about here. He's got four Pro Bowls and three All Pros with him, so that makes him uh, another uh, one to take a look at here. So I guess I'm sort of stuck between Ladd and Bosley. Yeah, they'd be both good choices, and Ladd was a fearsome player, of course, back when, but, when he but, was playing. I Bosley, was- 14 years though, four times a Pro Bowl. So right, and Ladd only had the 77 for five years. So I guess if, if yeah. all things are equal with four Pro Bowls, you almost got to lean towards uh, Bruce Bosley. Yeah, I would think we'd go that way. Okay, so we will put him on as our tenth. Uh, just a, a quick review here: uh, Willie Rofe, Jim Parker, Red Grange, uh, Andrew Whitworth, Jim Tyre, uh, Dick Sca- uh, Shafrath. Uh, sorry about that name again. Lyle Alzado, Carl Mecklenburg, uh, Bruce Bosley, and Jim Jeffcoat. Those are our top 10 greatest number 77s that uh, Joe Ziemba and Darren uh, Hayes came up with today on the Pigskin Dispatch. So, boy, that's quite a chore that we did there. And I thank you for the research and the help and the great stories that you told about these guys. I mean, just you do a great job of uh, preserving the football history of these, these gentlemen. Many of them may have been long forgotten, but uh, glad to bring their memories back uh, to the listeners here. And I appreciate you, you helping on that. Yeah, there are some really great players. And since a lot of them are linemen, they were largely unrecognized. And so, uh, again, Darren, what you're doing and bringing back these numbers is not only interesting, but it's necessary. And I, I thank you for doing that, too keep up our homage to these fellows who played years ago and we can remember them and maybe honor them one more time, or maybe for the first time for some of them. <laughs> well, Joe, I want to go, you know, since we were done with that, I, I want to go a little off topic, but uh, stay within the realm of football. Uh, you're when football was football podcast that you host, uh, I believe bi-weekly and you had a very interesting one come up that's uh, coming up a lot in our football history headlines lately. And that's that Chicago all-star game that uh, spanned over what, four decades. And yes. uh, I-, I thought you had a very interesting podcast on that with a, a lot of great um, information of how it started and players that played in it and uh, just some of the highlights of it. And uh, maybe if you'd like to just share a little bit of a, a tease to, to get listeners to go over that, we'd definitely like to, to hear what it's about. Yeah, the All-Star Game ran from 1934 through 1976, so 42 years. I've always called it the Super Bowl before there was a Super Bowl, because even though it was a preseason game, it attracted the largest crowds of the season, uh, often going over 100,000. And it was held in Chicago at Soldier Field, where the Bears play now, which uh, was a lot bigger at the time, so they could really cram people in there. And it was unique because it brought together the defending champions of the NFL against a college all-star team of graduated seniors that were picked by fans nationwide. It was just an incredible, immense responsibility for Arch Ward, who was the sports editor of the Chicago Tribune, to come up with this because he not only had to get permission and talk people into playing in the game, but also organize this national balloting, arrange for Soldier Field, 
make uh, accommodations for the all-stars, bring them in, put them through a three-week training camp, and he pulled it off. It was just amazing. Uh, of course, as the pros became more popular, the games were very competitive at the start. The very first game was a tie, 0-0. In the second year, the Bears played again, and they won 5-0, to zero, even though they weren't the NFL champions. But the big argument was going on at the time was, who's better, the colleges or the pros? And so the first few games didn't really decide that. And both sides still claimed that they were the best. It was just uh, almost political at the time as to whether uh, who was the better, better brand of football. And the pros changed the rules around that time. And at the beginning of our show tonight, you talked about Red Grange catching a pass from Bronco Nagurski. And the rule back in 1932 or so is you couldn't throw a pass unless you were five yards behind the line of scrimmage. And Nagurski was running forward like a plunge, and he pulled up and threw a jump pass to Grange to uh, win the championship. And there's a lot of complaints. Referees didn't change the rule. But the NFL did change their rule. But the colleges did not accept that rule. And so when the All-Stars and the pros got together, they had to figure out which rules they're going to play by. And so it was almost like when the NFL played Canadian teams later, they had to get together on the rules. Same game, a lot of different rules that can make big, big differences. But eventually the pros started dominating. They won 31 games, lost nine. I think there are a couple ties in the beginning. And most of those college victories were in the early 30s and 40s. But by then the players were making so much money. They were missing out on training camp. Uh, There was a fear of injury, which happened a few times. And there was a monsoon that hit the south side of Chicago where Soldier Field is in, in 1976. The fans poured onto the field, as did the rain. And after that, it was decided, yeah, maybe this isn't a good idea. They had to call the game because of the weather. And that fear of players getting hurt brought the game to an end. But it raised millions for charity, which is another major accomplishment of the All-Star Game in Arch Ward. And he was really an innovator and, in my opinion, a genius. He also invented the Major League Baseball All-Star Game and the Golden Gloves Boxing Tournament. So he always envisioned himself more as a promoter than as a sports writer, but he was an excellent writer as well. So I babbled on long enough, but uh-huh. uh, if anyone liked to hear our little podcast going on now over in the Sports History Network, it is called, as Darren mentioned, when football was football. We do talk in depth about that first college All-Star Game. Yeah. Uh, so what do you have coming up on your, one of your next episodes uh, that we can look forward to? There's a, another fun one coming up next, which will be some lost games of the Bears and the Cardinals. And in our research, we actually found two games that I didn't know about that the Cardinals played way back when. And a lot of people don't realize some really, really bad opponents that the Bears and the Cardinals played around the Chicago area or when they started traveling, they were among the first to go on tours out west into California. And this was after Red Grange, of course. But you could find them playing local semi-pro teams in high school stadiums. So we're going to try and pull some fun stories out about that and share some lost games that we've just found, as well as several other games people may not have ever heard about or ever thought this might be possible that pro teams would play such a low level of football. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah, uh, definitely. And uh, besides hearing Joe on when football is football, and boy, he's he's on our program quite a bit. Uh, the guys over at the, from the fifty-five yard line had uh, Joe on recently and really exercised his uh, his football brain in that uh, discussion. <laughs> it was really a lot of fun, really entertaining, and. Boy, Joe, your your knowledge, uh, the questions they were throwing curveballs at you, and you came out uh, you know, swinging at everything and uh, did a great job. And we really appreciate that knowledge that you shared with us. And I learned a lot just by listening. I might go back and listen to it again because it's yeah. a very exciting uh, podcast episode. And tying in with the the Canadian theme that they they have on their podcast was excellent. You connected the, the dots quite well. And uh, I think uh, – you deserve some big kudos for that. Cause I was challenging a line of questioning and you really came through. So well done. Oh, we thank you. I, I tried to fake it as best I could. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, Joe, I thank you once again for helping us out here with these numbers. I, I know we have you for at least a one or two more, and we're going to probably uh, try to coerce you into talking in our other series on our, our uh, football teams that are, 
now no longer with us, that, uh, but it had some importance to pro football history. And we'll look forward to talking on those very soon. So thank you very much. Excellent. Thanks again for having me. And it really is a blast talking about these old jersey numbers and the players who immortalize them, so to speak. So thank you, Darren. Greatly appreciate it. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of you Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including T-shirts, long-sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to SportsHistoryNetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items. Plus, get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. That's all the football history we have today, folks. Join us back tomorrow for more of your football history. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians, you'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.